I loved how Joe says, so like, do you have a bunch of great secrets? And, <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I think I'm being pretty open. <laughs> <laughs> I got where you were coming. I got like, I, I got your question, but I, it was just funny. His response. Yeah. He's like, I'm, I'm sure he does. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of crap. He just is like, well, I'm never well I also like the idea that you're going to ask him about his secrets. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I just wanted to, I was not going to ask him like spill stuff to us on this dumb podcast. I just want to know, like you kind of did. You kind of said, Hey, do you have secrets? Uh, I do, but I can't. They would not be secrets if I then told you about right. them on I the podcast. I just want to know that you know cool crap. I don't. I don't. You don't have to tell me who killed Kennedy. I just want to know if you know. I felt okay. like that was the one like, like interview table moment with him. Like, like he went into cop mode. He goes, "I'm being very open." <laughs> so that would be Andy Arena we're talking about. He is the executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission. Joe tried to get him to spill his secrets. No, I didn't. You will listen and find out if he did. This is the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. Uh, <laughs> didn't your microphone break when we were No, I was an idiot and I think I had something muted and wasn't paying attention. You okay? It's my allergies. Literally, I have COVID. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. I don't have COVID. Jimmy got you couldn't have, I'm like, edited that better. <laughs> Welcome to Cold Oatmeal, a podcast by the Rush Strategies team about PR and public affairs. Really. I was distracted staring at Joe's cold oatmeal. Yeah, well, it's here. He's got it on his, it's, on his it's desk. Always right here. Here. It's always here. And by the way, the, the, the ratio of, like, fruit to disgusting is, like, 1 to 10. It's got some disgusting stuff and some fruit. Yeah, it's There's like nothing disgusting. One part fruit. What's, what, what in there is disgusting? I don't even know what's in it, but it, it looks like cucumber mash and maybe a couple of chopped apples. Did you have Burger King for breakfast? What was your... Save it, guys. <laughs> So welcome back. It's the cold case. Cold oatmeal. This is going to be great. This is going to be great. It was a good one, folks. This is no Peter Riddell. I tell you, we <laughs> we had to regroup. We had to regroup after last week oh and try to figure out. Okay, is this podcast worth keeping going? Have we hit the bottom? We did, kind of. We did. Um, <laughs> and then we but bounced back. We have bounced back. Yep. We are mm-hmm. back with a vengeance. This is Matt Resch. Um, I am the owner of Resch Strategies. This is the Cold Oatmeal Podcast, and we are a public affairs and a public relations firm in downtown Lansing, Michigan. Uh, you can find us at reststrategies.com on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at reststrategies. And all of our uh, episodes on are on the website there. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, listen, uh, review. This is You're going to want to review this one. You're going to want to share this one with your friends. This is, a, this is a good one. You can also follow us on Twitter, the, the little podcast here is on Twitter, at Cold Oatmeal Pod. So before we get into our guest, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Nikki, let's start with you. Nikki O'Mara. Joe Bashi. Carly Buell. Nick DeLue. Laura Beal. I think that Stephanie's appearances could be a bit of a cold case because I think she's she's ghosting us. Have you noticed this? That yeah. she always yeah. yes. she always accepts the invitation to be on the podcast and then she just never is here. Kind of like she was busy. <laughs> she gaslights us. She does. She's <laughs> been, <laughs> she's I I just want to say, Steph, thank God that you're hard at work carrying the, the yes. firm while we're here <laughs> having fun. Yeah. Someone needs to while we're having fun. Anyway, today we are going to talk to someone uh, fascinating. Um, 
Andrew Arena, Andy Arena, is the executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission. So you might be wondering what that is. He's going to tell us. But Andy was born uh, in Dearborn, raised in Detroit, got his law degree at CMU and then uh, Detroit College of Law, got a law degree, 20 plus years uh, with the FBI, starting in Syracuse, New York. And this guy, you know, he was telling us before this, and he didn't actually say it in the podcast, so I'll, I'll, I'll share the joke that his, that his wife um, said about him, that she called him like the Forrest Gump of the FBI, because this guy, his career mirrored and he, he traveled around the country i think he said nine different cities nine different uh, kind of assignments he was in la in 93 right after the riots the la riots um did counterterrorism counterintelligence uh in new york and at the fbi headquarters after 9 11 um was involved in the um, uh, boston marathon uh, bombing uh, headed up crime division in new york to in new york and then was uh, sent back home to do special agent in charge of the Detroit division, uh, which was involved in the Kwame Kilpatrick uh, corruption. Busy guy. Busy He's guy. A boss. He has been, he has been places and seen things. So the Detroit Crime Commission was found in 2011, and he is the executive director, and he is our guest on the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. Andy Arena. So Andy Arena, executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission. Thanks so much for being with us on the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. Thank you for the invitation. You know, I gotta. I, I feel like I have to like start this this conversation with an apology because as we were booking this and getting this ready, um, your your colleague Ellis uh, Stafford at the commission uh, kind of punted this over to you, and I'm like, okay, yeah, friend Andy, this sounds good. And then I went to go look you up and get ready for this and looked through your bio, and I thought this is kind of embarrassing. He he probably shouldn't be spending his time <laughs> with us. This I, he must <laughs> he must have more important things to be doing than than driving to Lansing to talk to to us. But you're here now, so <laughs> sorry. <It's> too late. <laughs> sorry sorry about listen, that. There's nothing more important than what we're going to talk about. So. Okay. Right. Well, good. So I did I did go through briefly on your bio. You started with the FBI in 1986. Uh, 88, 1988. So w walk us through, like, uh, you could probably talk for four hours here, but you walk in there in 1988. Walk us through your career from there until kind of where you are now at the commission. Because sure. you, you were there, you were there at some pretty important times doing some important stuff. Sure. So I, I'm having this discussion with my 18-year-old uh, daughter who's getting ready to go off to college, you know, and what am I going to, what am I going to be, what am I going to do with my life, and you know, I'm telling her, like, study what you want to study, what makes you feel good, feel important, and, you know, you'll you'll find the job. So, and that's kind of what I did. I was like, you know, I, I went to college in Central Michigan. I went to law school at the University of Detroit, and I never wanted to practice law, never wanted to go into the courtroom uh, as an attorney. I wanted to get into law enforcement. My family were Detroit police officers. My brother, my sister-in-law, my, my uncle, my cousin were all Detroit cops. And which is interesting because my grandfather was in the mafia, so it was a little <laughs> interesting. Um, so for, for, for me, that was kind of my, my goal. I knew it. I went to college, went to law school with the knowledge I would never practice law and entered on duty with the FBI in, in June of 1988. Um, and it was a great run, 24 years all over the country, nine moves, uh, to actually 10 moves in, in 24 years. Um, I started out in uh, Syracuse, New York, uh, working, uh, working general criminal. I, I, I would say I could be working a bank robbery in the morning and interviewing the bank president uh, at in the afternoon for a bank major bank fraud case. So it was great experience. Um, went to L.A. right after the uh, the, the the riots in in '93, 
um, actually started a, a street gang task force, which was interesting because it was made up of FBI agents and LAPD uh, crash officers, which was their gang squad. And it was in the Valley Bureau where um, where the Rodney King uh, beating took place. Mm -hmm. And so all of the police officers, they knew those officers had been convicted by the FBI <laughs> in a federal trial. So, you know, it was an interesting an interesting time um, to, to go out there. But worked uh, a, a gang, MS-13, which back then nobody knew where they were. Now, probably the most famous street gang in the world. So uh, we were the first group to, to open a case against, against MS-13. Uh, from there, I went to Washington. I uh, was promoted. My first promotion to uh, to a supervisor in the organized crime squad or unit. Um, Is that because of your family connections to the mafia? Well, my, it might have been. It might have been. <laughs> but I had worked. I had worked in Syracuse. I had worked. Uh, a, a, a kind of stumbled onto a, a major organized crime case against the Gambino family and the Buffalo family. They were involved in construction fraud. So that was my my first big case in the FBI. And, you know, five wiretaps, an undercover operation. Later, it was a pretty major case uh, in that part of the country. So uh, I'd always kind of been on the radar of the organized crime unit, and so they, they brought me back. Uh, at the end, I was actually the acting unit chief when uh, I was sent up to Boston. Uh, my boss said, we may have an issue in Boston with a couple of informants. Would you take a look at it? I went up and looked at two files, uh, Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy, and called back and said, we got a big problem. And so I, I went up for a day and came back. That was in May. I came back uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, spent the whole summer in Boston doing the internal investigation. Um, from there, I went to Cleveland. I, ran, I was in charge of the bank robbery, major offender squad. Um, from there, I went to, to Youngstown to run the Youngstown FBI office, which was the most corrupt city in the United States at the time. Uh, Three years later, 72 convictions later, <laughs> uh, public corruption, public officials, anywhere from uh, um, city inspectors to the United States Congressman, James Traffic. Right. Yeah, uh, was a, was he was a, nuts. Yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was the largest corruption investigation in the history of the FBI. So history of the United States. So he could have been put in jail just for his haircut. Yeah. Remember that guy, that guy was, would go on C-SPAN. I'm, I'm such a dork, but he would go on C-SPAN <laughs> and give these speeches and he would, his suits, I think were from like the sixties and his haircut was from, I don't know from where, but well, the interesting was thing was his wife was a hairdresser. A true story. And I used to say is, you know, his store, his house, he lived out in this farmhouse and, and the old show green acres, it looked like the, mm -hmm. the front of it looked like green acres, but the back of it, there were wings shooting off and that's where he was the money he was stealing uh he was kind of putting into the house it was unbelievable i mean is he, he had, still it, in jail or is he still alive he, well he got out he did eight years okay. uh, at the time it was the longest corruption um sentence in the history of the united states he did eight and a half years i think got out um actually got a radio show which <laughs> was uh kind of a you like know, really interesting colorful character but uh he was he actually i think he, he died in a tractor like a tractor rolled over it was oh. actually one of the tractors he bought with the ill-gotten gains <laughs> but karma, karma. it's yeah. the universe yeah he's on he was like c-span made him a star like until yeah. they started he gave these just just beam, beam me up mr speaker that was oh. his uh, yeah. catchphrase hold on yeah, yeah sure match yeah. people are watching c-span and he's a star and everyone's talking about it i think that seems yes <laughs> well did did he really die in a tractor accident? <laughs> He's involved with or, with cor yeah. corruption, organized crime, and the tractor just happening. I mean, that's a great point, Nick. Yeah. I think that's a legit question. Well, he was he was a, he was actually a kind of a national star. He did C-SPAN did make him. He was very well known. He was he was you know one of the. You see a lot of 
politicians like him today, but you know, kind of this populist man of the people uh, right. thing. Um, he was he was an interesting, colorful character. Yeah, except he just looked like a total freak. He, yeah. he looked the, the character. He was he, like a movie character. Yeah. So from there, I, I came to Detroit. I, I was second in command of the Detroit field office, um, and I remember the discussion I had with the head of the office. Uh, he put me in charge of terrorism, and I remember saying, John, I don't know anything about terrorism. He said, Andy, you're an organized crime guy. It's the same concept. Besides, nothing ever happens. That was <laughs> May of 2001. Oh, oh. God. September 1st, oh, uh, all hell broke loose. And obviously with, with our demographics, I mean, a lot of, there was a lot of work. We were kind of at the tip of the spear in Detroit and the state of Michigan. Um, in ja January 1st, I got called back to Washington for a 30-day temporary assignment by then-director Mueller and never came home. Uh, so two two years later, I was I was actually the head of international terrorism operations for for the FBI, kind of rebuilding. It was kind of like going down the rapids and building the raft at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to rebuild the counterterrorism program, get the right people and expand it. And oh, by the way, stop the next terrorist attack. So it was certainly an interesting an interesting time. Uh, there I went to New York. I ran the criminal division of the New York field office, and then. 2007, Mueller sent me here back to Michigan to be uh, the head of my home state, which was an honor and a, and a privilege and uh, something I, I really, really enjoyed. Um, but 2012, I was eligible to retire. Um, didn't you know thought, if I you thought maybe you'd, you'd packed in enough in there. But. <laughs> but, you know, I, I still didn't know if I was ready to go. I was getting some job offers, and then Mueller called and said uh, he gave me a job offer, the number three job in the FBI, and I was very honored, but at that point, I was done with moving and um, had this opportunity with the Detroit Crime Commission, which was very unique. And, you know, how many times in your life do you get to go somewhere, start something, handpick the people and set the mission? And so to me, that really appealed. So, uh, uh, you know, I made the difficult call to Director Mueller to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm retiring. So uh, and I did and went on to, to start the Crime Commission. <laughs> So before we get into the commission, and if anyone, since I can't see any of you because you're behind me, but um, as all the people on the podcast, listening to the podcast can tell, <laughs> um, like wave or if, say something if you guys have questions. We'll just jump over you. Just jump over you. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, and we'll get to the commission here in a second. You just listed a handful, a half dozen major, and I think you left off um, kind of the Kwame Kilpatrick stuff because you, you were in Detroit for all that. Is there one of those kind of major national, international things that you were involved in that you'll remember when you're when you're a little older and you know fully retired? Like that, that is probably the biggest thing I did. You know, what what I always remember are, and I know we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, cold cases, but mm -hmm. what I remember are the the, the kidnappings, the and, and there were Nevada Buchanan, Donna Monroe, the Morenci boys mm -hmm. um, that that were never solved. You know, those, the, I think they haunt the investigators. So when people, ask, I get that question all the time, you know, was it, was it the trafficking case? Was it, was the, the Syracuse organized crime case? Was it Kwame? Was it the underwear bomber? Was it, you know, all these major cases that I had the opportunity, the MS-13. Um, yeah, those are, those are the ones, I'm proud of those. And, and, but I, I think a lot about those cases that we, we never solved. You know, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. it's just a, it it, it, most most law enforcement. If you talk to them, that's they'll tell you they'll give you that same answer. What is the, what is the technical definition of a cold case? What makes a case cold? So, you know, I don't know if it's so much the length of time or the fact that it hasn't been solved, or probably more of a combination of the two, right? So the trail kind of goes cold. Um, you know, anytime you have a, a homicide or a kidnapping or you know a case like that, 
there's the hot period where there's leads and you're and you're looking at different people and you're following evidence and if you don't solve it in a certain period then that trail starts to go cold and uh the longer you get away from the event it's it gets more difficult to to solve now obviously with some forensic work dna and things it, it's there are options that we didn't have years ago but um it really and then it gets out of people's minds you know mm-hmm. we move on to what's what's hot today right <laughs> what's in the news today are you guys ever going to find jimmy hoffa you know, I think Mr. Hoffa is... Uh, is that considered a cold case? It's got to be, yeah. Or is that just... Get, is it? It is. And I, you know, I get asked that question. I, so I was to tell people, I was the only special agent in charge of the Detroit field office that did not conduct a dig. I didn't dig up anybody's right uh, farm or... but. But, and, you know, and then Mike Bouchard has done 75 of them, right? He's, yeah, uh, yeah. Mike's <laughs> a good friend of mine. <laughs> but, you know... Um, I, I, you know, people say, well, why do we care? And I like, well, you know what? It's it's still a crime. It's still that that family cares, mm-hmm. right? And when you get to these cold cases, it's a lot of it is just closure for for the family and the community. So, um, I mean, have you asked your grandpa? Yeah. Well, he's a long dead, okay. but uh, <laughs> yeah. I think he did most of his work in Sicily. He okay. <laughs> <laughs> is there a cold? Is there a Michigan cold case that is you would say the most high profile one that currently is out there that? We were talking before you got here about those three, the three little boys, mm-hmm. um, and that one kind of I'll always remember that one. But I don't know—is that one that did you work on that one? I did. So you know, obviously Hoffa. I mean, it's, everybody talks about that. But yeah, um, so the Morenci boys. Um, I, you know, I was actually there physically on scene in, in command. Um, brought a lot of assets in from Washington, uh, from around the country to help us with that. Um, we all pretty much know what happened. Um, we know who did it. And um, can you, for people who don't yeah. know, can you walk just fifteen seconds? What was what happened? What was the? So I, I think it was right around Thanksgiving. Um, you know, it was obviously a husband and wife divorced. Um, the the husband had had custody, had the children, physical custody. He was supposed to bring back the mother, never did. Um, and we were able to track through cell phones and di- different techniques his locations. And, he, and for those who don't know him, obviously Morenci's right on the, the Ohio border, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of his activity and actions were over in Ohio. And so, you know, that was for the FBI, we could go back and forth. The state police, not not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the boys the boys just went missing and were never found. And the, the, the father would give us different stories, you know, and in Ashley never formally confessed but started talking about like locations where the boys would be and um you know i remember three o'clock in the morning looking at this old abandoned school um which was kind of scary because actually people were squatting in the in the building living in different rooms and so Mm -hmm. going through there looking uh looking in the basement looking in the old gymnasium uh some of the floors had collapsed ceilings had collapsed um, so those are kind of, to me very vivid memories. Uh, Three o'clock in the morning, searching um, the, these these fields and these buildings for these the remains of these three boys. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of those that, that's always kind of in my memory. Is you know, but I think it's certainly one of the one of the more famous ones. So that's the one you, you're pretty sure it's, it was the dad. You just haven't. Yeah, been, yeah. I mean, anybody who um, anybody who had anything to do with that case will tell you the same thing. It was the father. 
That makes me sad. <laughs> it is. It's yeah. I remember, it's a horrible I case. remember following that and reading a lot yeah. about it. There was a case on Monroe uh, uh, maybe a year before that. Uh, a little girl, Nevaeh Buchanan, went, went missing. And that was one where everybody we looked at, um, we were that, that's the person. I mean, there were more... Per capita, I guess there's more sex offenders in that area than anywhere else in the state. And it's like everybody we ran into was a registered sex offender or had, you know, some kind of a, a tie to her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, and I remember the, uh, the sheriff down, he was a former state trooper, really good guy. And when they found the body, um, like he didn't want to go to the scene. He said, no, I think it's a deer. And I'm like, no, you know, tell me we got to go. He knew it, and I just remember he was so emotional. I mean, you see this guy, 40 years, veteran of law enforcement, and see how emotional. And all those officers, agents that work that case, I mean, work any of these cases, it just really tears at them. You know? how, do you, how do you do this job? <laughs> because I, you could probably feel it just in the room as you're talking about those boys. Like, all of a sudden, like, we're all laughing and having a good time, and, and then the, <laughs> the tone goes wrong. Well, I, you know, yeah. I can remember going home, Nick, going home at night, and my my now 16 and 18 year old and they were much younger they were big kids you know and you know dad why aren't you you know we haven't seen you in a week <laughs> in there and they know they see it on tv and they would say to me hey did you find that little girl are you going to find that little girl you know and so that's it's hard and those are the cases that really wear wear on so when you ask that question mm-hmm. about the cases that you remember those are the cases you remember because they haunt, they they really haunt you they mm-hmm. haunt the the, the agents that worked at. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because we, we had on a few episodes ago uh, a guy here in town who wrote a book about a cold case that was a family member of his. Uh, his uh, a distant cousin was murdered in L.A. And um, he he set out to try to figure out how this will happen because it happened long ago enough that the family here in Michigan and across the country never really knew what happened. And it turns out the LAPD had solved the crime but had never really told them, you know, before mm-hmm. a lot of media and stuff like that. And he called back to found the detective who was there and like the guy, he had all the detail, like 30, 40 years later, all mm-hmm. the details right at the top, you know, and because yeah. he knew, he knew the, that case and he, how he, how he solved it. And it's fascinating how you guys can kind of keep all that. Cause you're probably always thinking about these things and looking for new, anything that might trigger something, right? Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of these cases, you know, in my career, I mean, they're kind of murky or cloudy, but you know those cases. You know Nevada Buchanan, the Morenci boys. You know they just—they're very vivid, very mm-hmm. vivid in in my memory. So, and I think anybody who worked those cases will, you know, there's there's parts of the. I was getting some questions the other day about Kwame. Um, you know, he was he was uh, he's a minister now or whatever. He was he's doing back. preaching, and yeah. so, you know, the me- local media was calling me about my thoughts, and I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't, you know, I don't care. Listen, the man did his time. It's 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 a job to us. It's not personal. Um, but there's parts of that case I I can't really remember, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not as vivid as this. Th- these are more personal, I think. But you remember the party, though, don't you? <laughs> Vividly. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. yeah. Well, you know, it was, it was interesting as the you know the and this is something I don't know why it never came out. I mean, it's there. But the 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 killing the killing of the dancer. Um, I, I, hold found, on, I'm, yeah, yeah. I might have post-traumatic stress yeah. talking about this. Yeah, we found we found out they had nothing to do with that. It was yeah. her boyfriend was a drug dealer. About two weeks prior to her killing, he had been shot at um, with another vehicle by by some drug dealers. Mm-hmm. 
And the night of the shooting, they were in a Mercedes. We actually found that Mercedes in Ohio somewhere. It had been sold, and we pulled two slugs out, one out of the seat and one out of the door, and they matched the ballistics of the first shooting. So it, it told us that it, had, it was a drug deal. Mm-hmm. And, but the media never, you know, that wasn't sexy, it doesn't sell, you know, so right. that never went anywhere. But that's, that's the truth of what happened. What is it, what do you, going to the, uh, your work in New York and, and 9-11 and the counterterrorism mm-hmm. stuff, I, I think, maybe I'm wrong about this, I, I, I think most people think about that as the CIA and the, you know, military doing that kind of stuff. As an FBI agent, <clears throat> what is it like to be a part of something that's, this kind of international national effort, you know, trying to respond to and prevent something like 9-11? So I, I think to me, um, there's two birthdays of the FBI, you know, when they, 1926 and then September 11, 2001 was the reformation of the FBI. The FBI prior to that was, was the domestic intelligence agency for the United States, but was not very good at it. They were very reactive. Like there was no better agency in the world if, if a crime happened to go out and find the people. And we were very good at tracking down the 19 hijackers and, you know, all of that and their their contacts but when you talk about national security it's better to stop it right be more mm-hmm. proactive and the fbi was just not set up for that and so that was one of my jobs was as i said build that rebuild that raft and say you know so i brought in mostly organized crime agents from around the country because that's very proactive work you know you're bugging and using uh, uh informants and infiltration to try to find out what they're doing before they do it so kind of changing that battleship direction and getting it sailing in the right direction to protect the country was was not easy. You got old timers that don't want to change, right? They're used to the way things have been done for the last 80, 90, 100 years. It's hard It's hard to change that that culture, but uh, it has that, Was that just a symptom of the fact that we had never had something like that happen to us before, so we didn't really think we had to focus on that? I, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, terrorism was over there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the fact that they attacked, attacked the U.S. embassies in East Africa, they attacked the USS Cole, well, that was over there, you know. Oh, that 1993 World Trade Center, well, that's really nothing. You know, that was a, a blip. They didn't, they didn't succeed. I think 9-11 really opened everybody's eyes that, yeah, it is a threat. And there are bad people internationally and domestically mm-hmm. who want to do bad things to us. With your uh, organized crime and uh, counterterrorism experience and all that stuff, is there just a ton of stuff you can't talk to us about at all that you're just sitting on, like amazing things that you're like, no, I just can't share this. It'd blow your mind if I could. Most of my, most of what I talk about. So, you know, there are some national security things that, you know, I guess technically I'm, I don't have the clearances anymore, but I think when I left, they said, hey, don't ever talk about this. We could really, we could really juice up our following here. If you just want to use this to kind of say a few of those, that'd be awesome. Well, I'm being pretty open. (laughs) (laughs) And then he stops talking. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't looking for him to spill anything. I just want to know that he's sitting on cool stuff. Like, that's that's all I really wanted to hear. Um, So talk a little bit about the Detroit Crime Commission. How did, why did it start? When did it start? What does it do? So um, 2011 or so, I was actually approached by a, a group of local businessmen in Detroit, and they said, look, we want to start we, we want to start a crime commission. We want to, and there's crime commissions all over the country, New York, Chicago, L.A., Kansas City, New Orleans, and they all kind of have different missions. But 
um, we want to start this this group, and um, you know, what are your thoughts? And I said, well, if you if you have a mission uh, and you have it focused, and you realize you're not cops anymore, uh, and, and like I said, in New Orleans they work on corruption, in Chicago they do a lot of a, a analytical work on street gangs and violence. So if you carve out a mission here, I think you could do it. And they went to the Barb McQuaid was U.S. Attorney. They went to Kim Worthy, <clears throat> the prosecutor. They, you know, I, I, back then I think we had a chief of police change every week in Detroit. So I'm not sure who the chief was. And I think they got the same message. And they came back and said, "Would, um, you know, if you were going to do it, who would you hire?" And uh, I gave him Ellis's name mm-hmm. and a couple other folks. And then they said, "Would you do it?" And then ethical reasons i said look i can't have that were you with the fbi i was so with the bureau i said look i gotta stop you right here i can't have that discussion so um they came back when i was eligible and i had some other job offers and said would you do it and as i said you know to to, to have the ability to hire handpick a team set a mission uh i I mean i like everybody i work with which is kind of rare i mean i'm sure you guys all like each other here but you know in the workplace (laughs) it can be difficult so so we kind of carved out a mission you know to how how can we make southeast michigan a a safer place a better place to live um and doing analytical work with respect to organized crime and gangs um stuff that maybe law enforcement just doesn't have time to do um being the fiduciary on the rape kit initiative in in the city uh, or wayne county the city of detroit um handling money for other other mm-hmm. entities in the city because you know detroit doesn't have the best reputation to be able to handle money money goes missing <laughs> so uh we we will handle you know things like that um just kind of being a bridge sometimes between the community and law enforcement i always say law enforcement speaks chinese and and um, the community groups speak french and one of the things that ellis and i have become very adept at is kind of speaking both languages um, we did a lot of community outreach work when we were law enforcement officer so you know and now you're just kind of looking at the future of law enforcement and what it needs to do to change uh to kind of get with it and so we're, we're kind of involved in, in that too so we've, we've carved out a number of missions and and you know and obviously this we were approached to uh, obviously lansing is not southeast michigan mm-hmm. but um we actually did some work out in battle creek we've done some work up in flint and this just seemed like, like a logical logical fit before we get to the Lansing, I wanted to follow up on what you just said there. What what do you make of the last year or so in law enforcement? You know, starting I guess with the George Floyd uh, George Floyd murder and everything that kind of went through last summer and the conversations now around law enforcement kind of reform efforts. So I, I think that it started long before. Um, I think that progressive law enforcement agencies. Uh, are always evolving and always changing. And um, Ellis and I talk about this all the time. I mean, when you look at law enforcement, it starts with hiring. It starts with who are you recruiting and how are you re- recruiting. And that's that's a big issue. And then it's, it's the backgrounds. And what are you doing to weed out the bad apples, the psychological analysis, those types of things. It's the training. How are you training your officers? Are you training them to be public servants? Are you training them to be occupying forces? Um, when they get on the job, it's it's you know keeping an eye on them. The continued training. It's the the management. Are are your managers managing the people, or are they managing their careers? It's uh it's the counseling you get. I mean, listen, law enforcement is a tough job. Mm-hmm. You see the worst of the worst. And if you're not getting support, you're going to start to think the world is bad. 
really quickly. And I know a lot of law enforcement agents, uh, officers that have kind of gone down that road. You, you start to forget that you're a public servant. You start to forget why you did the job. I can tell you right now, most vast majority of law enforcement officers took the job to be a public servant, not to beat people, not to violate people's civil rights. Mm -hmm. You know, I guarantee that. But it's a slippery slope when you go down it really quickly. So that's the discussion. And I don't know that we're having it. Mm -hmm. You know, right now we're two armed camps. We're back to blue and defund the police. And in the middle is where that discussion should be occurring, and it's not. So we're trying to facilitate that through the Crime Commission. You know, Ike McKinnon is one of our board members, former chief of police, deputy mayor. Ike's, you know, a good friend of mine, and just he's got a lot to say. He's been writing a lot of op-eds. Um, you know, and I think we just got to bring the, the parties together in the middle. That's 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 easier said than done, right? right. So Lansing, <clears throat> we got this a cold case issue. This was when Ellis, uh, when I met with Ellis and your colleague maybe a month or so ago, um, and he uh, he signed you up for this this podcast mm -hmm. duty. Um, he, he was talking to me about this new cold case project that the commission is working on for the city of Lansing. What's what's that all about? So um, we were we were approached by some folks that that are. Uh, affiliated with the city of Lansing and they said we know what you do down here in Detroit you know is there any chance you would come up and help us so <clears throat> we sat down with the with the Lansing Police Department with the detective in charge of the unit um, which is one person mm -hmm. you know so <laughs> it's one person who's doing a, a number of other things in the chief and they they bought in 100% and so we started the process of, of kind of mapping out a mission statement what would it look like and obviously the big thing is funding right um, in this environment, you're just not going to get any any additional funding. So, what we've done in the uh, city of Detroit and Wayne County is let's go out and see if there's foundations out there that will support this, private citizens, other fundraising efforts. So, that's kind of what we've we've been doing with them. Is you know, there's 80, 85 uh, unsolved homicides in the city of Lansing. That's that's a lot for a city this size, mm -hmm. and. Um, People ask me, well, why should we care? I mean, those are old. Well, yeah, but that person is still out there. So first it's a closure for the family. But the other thing is that person's out there committing, potentially committing other crimes. Um, and so if you can redouble the efforts to get them off the street, maybe you save somebody else. But you definitely bring closure to that, to that family. I have a random question that I just thought of. How often are databases like Ancestry DNA used in, in trying to close like cold case files and stuff and like find dna because i feel like there was one that was just solved in some big serial killer or something like that yeah i don't know how how often they are i mean obviously there's a um there's there's state databases and there's federal databases and i'm not sure i've been gone eight nine years now so i'm not really sure how linkedin like the fbi's databases with the, some of those, with those private yeah. ones i'm gonna guess they probably have to get a subpoena or something mm. they you know some kind of a court order um because there's got, there's got to be some privacy issues there. But, you know, most of the time those people are in a state or federal database. They're, they're, they're repeat mm -hmm. offenders. Yeah. So. Okay. Just curious. Do you watch crime shows? <laughs> I do not. My, my daughters <laughs> love those, like, CSI. So my 18-year-old, my she wants to be in forensic science. She wants to be in the FBI intelligence analyst. So they watch those shows. Like, I don't. Like people say, did you watch, uh, you know, this movie or, or or The Sopranos? I'm like, no, because I live that, you know. And it's it's you know, they, to me, they kind of fictionalize uh, 
Is it hard because you know how it really works and it's oh, just yeah. not even close to how it's being Yeah, depicted? yeah. So when I'm looking at now, The Sopranos was a little more realistic because it just showed how what degenerates these guys <laughs> really were. So, you know, most organized crime, they are. I mean, they're the the, uh, the movie Donnie Brasco. I think is probably the most realistic. You know, they're breaking open parking meters to steal coins. You know, these guys are doing anything they can to make make money. So a lot of times they're they're just out grabbing money wherever. But yeah, they're 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 degenerates. I should, I'm not I'm not a good movie person, but I'm trying to think. There have been movies made about some of the cases you've talked about. Wasn't there a Whitey Bulger? Yeah, there's... Um, and wasn't there something about the Boston... Was there a Boston? The Boston bombing? The Boston yeah, bombing, was. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you watch... Do you ever go back and watch those that you I've, were personally I've involved I've watched in? a little bit. I watched... Now, obviously, the, uh, it was called uh, Black Mass was the Whitey Bulger. And yeah, there's some truth there, and there's a lot of fictionalization. Um I talked to uh, the 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 head of the Boston FBI, Rick Deloria. He's actually here in, De- in Detroit. He he's uh, head of security for Penske, and um, so he was the head of the FBI. And you know he was consulted on that movie. Uh, I tell him he does. Kevin Bacon looks nothing like him. But, <laughs> but, but. Do you ever have you ever done that? Have you ever consulted? Was that could that be like a into retirement gig for you by working with that Hollywood to just tell them how it, it really works? You know, works? I do a lot. Of, I do a lot of consulting. I have a little side business. else I do some consult, security consulting, but it's usually people we know and friends, and they're starting a company and um, you know they do due diligence or you know securing a location. So we do things like that. But uh, I don't know. I, People tell me all the time, I, I, I've got a book in there. I probably should write it before I forget all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you should, yeah. or somebody could, you know, do a movie about you. Some, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I can write the book someday. But well, you're, 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 you appear to be a young, I mean, you're a young guy. You got some, <laughs> you got some stuff to do. I'm getting old quick, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just said you were bringing your daughter off to college, right? So that will probably age. I mean, you have two teenagers? Uh, yeah, I've got an older one who's just got married, and I've got, uh, I have three daughters, so I always say God has a sense of humor because He gave me three <laughs> girls. I would soon to be junior in high school, soon to be freshman in college. So. Well, Andy, I appreciate you making the trip up here and and kind of <laughs> bringing yourself down to talk to us about yeah. this. Has no. been any any time. I'd love to come back. I, I really would. Okay, we'll keep that in mind. Andy Arena, I will be right back. That was amazing. We've had some interesting guests on this podcast before, but to kind of trip into this one. Yeah, he's, yeah. Too, he's yeah. too good for us. It was yeah. awesome. I, I, <laughs> feel, I feel embarrassed. I read was, his bio, and I was like, this guy's are you too here? legit yeah. to come talk to <laughs> us. Like, like, don't you want an intern heck? you can send? Like, I, maybe, yeah. maybe he's undercover. Maybe he's undercover in the whole thing. Maybe oh, he's just, yeah. He's it's like, just a joke on us. Yeah, right? it's just really. A, Peter, I know Peter Riddell is getting us back. He found someone to play this amazing police detective. Well, I feel like we've crescendoed, too, on the cold case thing. Like we started, with, like we had Shana who talked about her cold case book, and then and then we had another cold case issue with with Buddy, and and then it's like it all built mm-hmm. up to. Yeah, it's true. We guess. should just do a spinoff. I was yeah, just gonna right. say that we should do a yeah. cold, cold oatmeal cold case. I mean, it's meant to be. It is meant to be. In the name. Well, he said there are sixty-five unsolved murders in Lansing. One of them has to be super interesting. Well, you know, when I met with when I met with his when I met with his colleague, and I'm gonna get this wrong. One of them, I believe, is a former mayor of Lansing. I believe the former mayor of Lansing years ago was 
killed somehow and it is a cold case. We should solve that. I may have gotten that Can very that be wrong. a new offering in our firm? <laughs> we will solve your cold case. Did you say murdering? murdering. <laughs> no. Murder. We can become an investigative <laughs> investigators and solve cold cases. We should do that. Cold that would cases. actually be way cooler the than what we I think Joe would do. be in on that. <laughs> the first and thing the I ever wanted to do when I grew up was to be a detective. Yeah. I we really help Nick like reach his dream. And we we we've met a consultant now who can yeah. teach right. us how to do it. Nothing like a bunch of middle-aged <laughs> failed detectives to middle life midlife say, "Hey, you know what? I always wanted to do this, was never able I, or good enough to do it, but I'm going to do it now." I resent I the implication that I'm middle-aged. I was just going to say the <laughs> same like, thing. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself. I really want to go home and watch Law and Order and other crime shows <laughs> the rest of the day. Well, it's you can do that. You can do that. <laughs> Nick, when do you hit middle age? What is that definition? It's It's got to be in your upper 40s, I would imagine. Okay. Just, just <laughs> Not wondering yet. what you're thinking. <laughs> I, still th- I, I had this conversation actually with my brother just the other day because he's turning 40 this, this August. And... And I said, I mean, it's a big day. And he goes, it's not a big day. I said, it is. That 40 is the line where you're no longer a young adult. You're just an adult. Mm-hmm. And and he kind of scratched his head. But I, I think that's 40 is an adult. And I'm just 41. So I'm just, I'm an, barely adult. an adult. I'm barely, barely an adult. I'm barely an adult. I think Am I still a kid? Y- For yes. sure. Yeah. You are a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, like, so Carly, tell me your, what do you remember about 9 11? Nothing. Know, right. Exactly. So. Well, for a guy who has been doing what he's done for twenty plus years, he he yeah. was like a kid. Yeah, right. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he had such a yeah, he's such a young. Doesn't mm-hmm. look very stressed by any of it, but mm-hmm. great guy. And I was glad to meet him. And kind of this is one of these. Trying, I was trying to think back of like guests, guests that we went into completely unprepared and unaware of what we were really getting into, and then landing in a conversation, a yeah. really good conversation. There, we've had a handful that have just been really pleasant a surprise. Not that all of our guests haven't been delightful. Mm. No, but this yes. was awesome. Good recovery. Sean Gailey was fantastic. Sean was the best. <laughs> I, I still, people are still asking, you know, it's been a, two weeks since Sean was on, <laughs> and people are still talking <laughs> to me about that. So, mm-hmm. Peter, maybe someday you'll be on. Um, but today it was Andy Arena. Uh, he is the executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission. Uh, former FBI agent um, du jour. Uh, great conversation, great guy that f- to make the trip and talk to us. For Nikki, Joe, Carly, Nick, Laura, and Matt, this has been the Cold Oatmeal Podcast, and we will talk to you next time.